I'd like you to turn with me to these closing salutations of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4. You'll notice that the Apostle has spoken of at least eight fellow workers who sent their greetings to the Colossian church. From verse 15, we learn that the brethren were to be saluted, which are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church which is in his house. And in verse 18, he said, The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Paul here is giving these closing remarks, these closing salutations, and he's summing everything up by referring to those who have helped him in the ministry. Uh, He gives here some words concerning the brethren of Laodicea. You see that in verse 15, the brethren of Laodicea. That's a great word, brethren. It's a word that we would today use as brothers. And it's a family term. It's good to be of the brethren with a small b. Good to be one of the people of God, the family of God, united in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why we are brethren. This is why we are sisters, referring to the women folk, because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the family of God, and that's a great thing. We weren't always in the family. We could not always be referred to as brethren. There was a time when we were outside the fold. But by grace, we may now be referred to as brethren. Now, greetings are sent to one particular brother. He's mentioned here in verse 15. And his name is Nymphas. We don't know a whole lot about this man, but it does say that he has a church in his house. Now, what does that mean? Well, it simply means there was an assembly of God's people who met publicly for worship in his home. And that was not an unusual thing in the New Testament. And for example, if you were to turn over to Romans chapter 16, you would see there in verse number 5 that Paul gives this greeting. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. And in particular, he's referring here to Priscilla and Aquila. They were a Christian couple. And they hosted a church in their house. Again, if you go further back in your Bible to Acts chapter 12, you'll discover that in verse 5, when it's talking about Peter being persecuted by Herod and how that he was kept in prison, it says, but... Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And that means the church assembled. That means the church collectively. You go on down the chapter and you'll see that that's fleshed out further in verse 12. Because the Bible records, And when he, that's Peter, had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. There's the church met in Mary's house. 
And again, just to give a further reference, in Philemon, the one epistle, in verse 2, Paul sends greetings to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. And he's referring, of course, to the home of Philemon. So this was not an unusual thing for the early Christians to meet in homes. Those churches, those gatherings of Christians, probably met in apartments of those houses. Places that were specially set apart or devoted to the purpose of public worship. A person in that day who had money might have a big meeting room, a large meeting place, and they could offer that for the use of the church for worship. That's what happened in the case of Philemon. Now, as we now know, as we would consider them today, church buildings were not then available in the New Testament days. They didn't have such as we have today. And there are probably a number of reasons for that. But certainly I would suggest that the restrictions caused by persecution would be one of those. There are countries today, today, in 2023, where you cannot build a Christian church, at least one that's going to stay there for more than one day without being burned down or destroyed in some other fashion. There are countries, Islamic countries, uh, communist countries, where the church still operates underground. And God's people don't have fancy buildings and pews and stained glass windows and such like. Because they're being persecuted for their faith. So they meet in private dwellings. This still happens in the world. So every time you make your way to the house of God and are able to worship publicly with us, think about that. There are Christians in the world, your brethren and sisters in the Lord, who don't have that privilege, who don't have that available to them. The church in thy house. Now, of course, there are circumstances where sometimes it is necessary to have some services in houses, even in our culture. For example, when a church is only getting started. And I've known of this many times in my life, in my experience in the Free Presbyterian Church, there have been those who have started, literally started churches in their house. One of our congregations, believe it or not, which is now quite sizable, started as four brethren met together regularly in a car. That's true. They met to pray, they met to talk about the Word of God, and they met to talk about forming a church. <clears throat> and there are all sorts of stories I could give you about uh, places <clears throat> that started out, that were, where churches started out, and they were not exactly uh, wonderful places. One church in Rasharkin in County Antrim was held, or was started in a loft, in a farmer's hayloft. And uh, the local people referred to those who attended that church in the early days as Paisley's barn rats. That's how they were described. Not very flattering. 
I remember the first church that Reverend Foster, Reverend Ivan Foster met in. <clears throat> it was a corrugated iron, I believe, some sort of tin anyway. You'd have heard the rain hammering off it when the rain was on, uh, drowning out the preaching. It was a, a glorified hen house. In fact, I think it had been used as a house for chickens. And there's a number of God's people who can look back to times when they didn't have these fancy, wonderful, comfortable, heated buildings. But they were like those in the New Testament who had the church in their house. Closer to home, the congregation in Malvern started in a house in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. I recall very well the first time I went there, it was an old farmhouse around which the town of Newtown Square began to grow up, so it looked rather quaint. And for quite a number of years, Reverend Greer and others met there for church. There were a couple of brethren years ago who told me that they were looking for this church. They'd heard Greer on the radio, and they drove up and down that avenue searching for this church in vain. One was a man called Stanley Danko. And eventually... They realized it's that farmhouse. That's where they meet. And so they began their adventure in the Free Presbyterian Church by attending the church in the house. And some glorious meetings were held in that place, I can tell you. But a numerical increase, blessing upon the work, will usually mean that any church that's in the house will not stay in the house, certainly in our culture. I think there are some who like being small and they want to remain small and they want to justify their smallness by saying that they are more sound than others, biblically. Now, I know that when you are sound biblically and you take a stand for the Lord, the work can be small. And in our day... I have to confess it does worry me greatly when I see massive overflowing parking lots outside a church. I think to myself, what are they preaching there? Because in the day in which we live, which is a day generally of small things, that is not necessarily, in fact I would say it is not usually a good sign. A lot of people don't want the truth. And therefore quite often the work of God will remain small. But I don't believe that we should try to justify smallness and become rather weird and isolationist just because the Bible says the church in thy house. That doesn't make you more holy. Doesn't mean you're any more sound in doctrine just because you have a house church. The house church movement is very large, by the way, in the United Kingdom. In some cases, they may indeed be sound. But I have to think that in the majority of cases, they're not. Sometimes the organizers of such house churches are those who have given themselves authority to be speakers. They haven't got the ability to preach. They don't have the call of God to preach. But they set up a work of their own because they want to have it that way. And so in some cases, their own family forms the congregation. 
Now, it may well be that because of faithfulness, your church is reduced to your own family. That can happen. It has happened to some good people that I know. But it's a sad thing if we get to the point where we think being small is a badge of honor. That it's a good thing to be small. It's a good thing when nobody comes in. It's a good thing when nobody ever gets saved. When we never see a new face. That that's, you know, that's orthodoxy. That's a standing for God. Nobody has the truth but us. If that's the attitude, that is a wrong attitude. If the Lord wants us to remain small, we'll remain small. But I don't believe that it's necessary to be small in order to be blessed. Just as I don't think it's necessary to have five or six hundred people to say that you've got the blessing of God. You may not. But the biblical pattern of a church has to be followed. And I don't see how a lot of these house churches qualify as churches when they don't have pastors, they don't have elders, and they don't have deacons. Every New Testament church that you read about, it had oversight. Paul talks about the elders that are among you. He, he speaks of the church with the bishops and deacons. You read terminology like that. The church has oversight. It's not a little rump of people who've just decided to set up something on their own because they don't want to be under the authority of somebody else. There needs to be a following of the biblical pattern. And this is what the same Apostle Paul taught. He's writing here in Colossians chapter 4 about Nymphas and the church in his house. But the same Apostle Paul expounds in Ephesians chapter 4 all about church leadership, about elders, about deacons. He writes to Timothy and gives you in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy the qualifications of elders and the qualifications of deacons. He writes to the Hebrews and in Hebrews 13 talks about obeying them that have the rule over you. There are some people in these so-called church house churches, nobody rules over them. No one. They're not answerable to anyone. They're not under anyone's authority. No one can correct them. They correct themselves. That's not biblical. It's not scriptural. There should be accountability. Now, if you look at verse 16, <clears throat> I want to just show you this, Colossians 4 verse 16. Paul gives a direction here. He says, when this epistle, this letter, is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. When this epistle is read among you. Now, there are many who believe, because of the similarity of the wording of Colossians and Ephesians, that the epistle that Paul is referring to was, in fact, the epistle to the Ephesians. It was a circular letter, if you like, that went first to Ephesus and then to the other churches in the Roman proconsular province of Asia. Thus, it reached Colossae by way of Laodicea. And mention is made here of the church and the brethren which are in Laodicea. There was a church in Laodicea. It's mentioned there in verse 13, them that are in Laodicea. Again, verse 15, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea. Again, it talks about verse 16, 
that this letter be read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So, we think about the church at Laodicea. It's brought up four times there. I know when I think of the church in Laodicea, I immediately think of the rebuke that was leveled at them in Revelation chapter 3. You will know that there were seven letters written to seven churches, churches in Asia that were formed. One of those churches was the Laodicean church. Unto the angel or the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write. Here's the message, Revelation 3 verse 14 onwards. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That's Christ. This is Jesus. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I'm speaking personally here. When I drink lukewarm hot tea or coffee, I I feel like spitting it out. I like it to be hot. That's what the Lord is talking about here. He said, you're lukewarm and I will spew thee out of my mouth. You make me sick. What a message that is to a church. You make me sick. That's strong, isn't it? Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I'm fine. Everything's good here. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyes salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. This is the message to Laodicea. When I think about the Laodicean church, it causes me to think of a sad church. They were in a sad state spiritually. There's a message for us there and for all the people of God in every age. But look again at Colossians 4 verse 17. There's a message here for one called Archippus. Archippus. He is an interesting character. Archippus is being greeted by the Apostle Paul. And he is one, if we compare Colossians 4.17 with Philemon verse 2, from whom we get the impression that he belonged to the family of Philemon. He may well have done. Some have suggested that he was perhaps Philemon's son. And he might even have been the interim pastor of the church that met in Philemon's house. Now we can't prove that. But it is a kind of a logical conclusion from much much of what is written in these verses. One has posited the idea that this would make Aphia... A-P-P-H-I-A, the wife of Philemon. But you'll notice that Paul's final words to the Colossian church, the last words before his salutation, they're directed at this man, Archippus. And he is 
encouraging him to continue faithfully in his ministry. The message for Archippus is a message to a man with a ministry. A work which was important, hence Paul's solemn warning to him. And the church as a whole was to convey this warning to Archippus. You'll notice that. Here's what he says. And say to Archippus, verse 17, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. This is a solemn charge. You might say he's telling these people, you better tell Archippus, don't quit. Don't quit. There's no place to quit when you're called of God. This was an encouragement to this man to continue faithfully with his ministry. Now, we don't know the circumstances, but we might ask the question, was Archippus discouraged here? Was he having a hard time? Perhaps those Gnostic false teachers in Colossae had had invaded his church and created problems for him. Maybe he was feeling the heat, feeling the pressure, being questioned all the time. We don't know. But we do know that pastors of churches do face problems. They do carry many burdens, believe it or not. And they do often need a word of encouragement. Sometimes I talk to my brethren in the ministry and other ministers who are not in our church, who are nevertheless good men. And I find that there's a common thread that runs through the conversation. And it is that they all have difficulties. They all have problems of some kind to contend with. Sometimes it's a health issue. Sometimes it's an issue with a member of their family. A wayward child or children. It may be a problem with folks in their church. There may be some issues in their church. A whole variety of things. But it's clear that God's servants have their problems. And they often need a word of encouragement. Paul is reminding Archippus through the Lord's people that his ministry was actually a gift from God to him. And that he was a steward of the Lord who would one day have to give an account of his work. Remembering back to my ordination in 1985, that was impressed upon me. You see, when our ministers are ordained, there's a message that is preached. And it's called a charge to the congregation. But there's also a charge to the minister. And I remember very well the charge that was given to me by my own pastor, Dr. Paisley. And what he told me was what Paul told Timothy. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. He preached a tremendous message, which was a charge to me personally, addressed to me by name that this is what God had called me to do. Not preach about the Word. Not tinker about on the edges of the Word. But to preach the Word. To bring the Scriptures before the people. And I remember it being emphasized to me that a lot of what you preach will cause trouble for you. 
Because as you read through 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says there will be those who will turn away their ears from the, tr- tr- from the truth and be turned onto fables. They won't want to hear it. They will not want to hear what you have to say. It's too hard. It's too strident. It's too straight. There are those who will not want that. But I was urged that night in 1985, November 20th, to remember that one day I would have to give an account for my ministry. That God had given me this ministry and one day he would call it back from me. I would give an account of my ministry. That's a fearful thing. All the elders, in fact, are told in the scripture in Hebrews 13, they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. So Archippus, you have a ministry from the Lord. Make sure that you fulfill it. It's a gift from God. You're going to give an account of that work someday. But since the Lord had given him this ministry, he could reflect upon the fact that the Lord will also help him to carry it out in the right manner. And every true minister can rejoice in this. Ministry is not something that we do for God. It's something that God does in and through us. God is the one who ministers. I'm just the instrument. Other ministers are just the instrument. But it's God who's teaching. This is, believe it or not, the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ being carried on in our day and age. Ministry, preaching. That's how Christ exercises his prophetic ministry, by his ministers, by his Spirit. This is a solemn word. Now, the word fulfill is used here. Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. It carries with it the idea that God has definite purposes for his servants to accomplish. I can tell you sometimes you feel like you're not really doing anything, that nothing's being accomplished through what you do. But that's not true. Because the Lord does work in and through us to complete those works that he has prepared for us to do. And of course, the word fulfill really fits in with the entire theme of Colossians because the the pleroma, the Greek word, the fullness of Jesus Christ is spoken of here as being available to each and every believer. And it's true of ministers that we're able to fulfill our ministries because we have been filled full through Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Filled full. Filled to the brim. Through Jesus Christ. Now, of course, fulfilling the ministry that you've received of the Lord means that you don't just preach the Word, but you also apply the Word. Now, we're not here just to give doctrinaire treatises. Some ministers may think that's their job, just to sort of teach intellectually the truth. But I'm here as a minister of Christ to call upon people to do something with what's preached. Especially the ungodly, the unsaved. 
I forget who the preacher was, but he said, every sermon you preach, you should be preaching it to get a response. Now, you can't give that response, I hasten to add. The Lord is the one who works in hearts. But you should be preaching for a response. You want people to do something with the word that they hear. To receive it. To act upon it. If someone's not saved, you're calling upon them to trust in Christ. Come to the Savior. Come and wash your robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. You're throwing that out there as a challenge to people so that they might respond to that and come to Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is part of the ministry. The ministry is not just teaching truth. It's applying truth. And so, when we preach the gospel, we need to be encouraged to press on with it. Take heed. Those are great words. Those are words that Paul used to Timothy on a number of occasions. Take heed. Take heed to thyself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in so doing thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. That's a great verse. You're to take heed to the doctrine. Take heed uh, to the ministry as it is here. Now, Paul apparently would have dictated his letters to a secretary. I don't know if you knew that. But if you go back to Romans chapter 16 and verse number 22, it says there, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. So he was the pen man, even though Paul was the one who wrote the epistle, but Tertius was the man who actually wrote it out. So Paul dictated his letters to a secretary, and then he would sign his name, at the end. But he always added a sentence about the grace of God. That was Paul's trademark. If you, you study Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, you'll find that. This is Paul's trademark. He always added something about the grace of God. So the combination of his signature, Paul, and grace gave proof that the letter was authentic. It was from him. Now, the New Testament contains a lot of references to Paul's bonds. And he mentions it here in verse 18. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. This is my letter. Remember my bonds. You see in Acts 20, verse 23, Acts 23, 18 and 29, Acts 26, 29, Philippians 1, 7, and verses 13 and 14 and 16, 2 Timothy 1.8, 2 Timothy 2.9, Philemon 10 and 13, Ephesians 3.1 and Ephesians 4.1. I know you didn't get all of those, but all of those verses contain references to Paul's bonds, the fact that he was in chains. This is a man who spent a lot of time in prison, and he was a prisoner for the Lord He suffered for the Lord's cause. He wasn't popular, especially among those who preached a false gospel, the Judaizers and even the Romans. He was not popular with them. And you see here in verse 18, one of the things that he said to the church was, Remember my bonds. Remember my 
bonds. Why did Paul want them to remember his chains or his bonds? Primarily because those bonds were actually a reminder to them of the love that he had for the lost, especially the Gentiles. That's why Paul went to prison. It's not because he loved prison. It's not because he had some sort of a death wish. He wanted to be in prison all the time. No, he preached the gospel and he knew the price of standing for Christ was opposition, persecution, becoming a jailbird. Remember my bonds. He said in Ephesians 3, 1, that he was the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. It was for the purpose of winning people to Christ. Paul's bonds were evidence of his obedience to Christ and his willingness to pay any price so that the Gentiles might hear the gospel. That's the kind of man he was. So therefore the exhortation to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it, wasn't from an armchair general, it was from a man who had done that himself. Paul could say that to others because he was a living example of what it means to fulfill your ministry in the Lord, even unto bonds. Listen, what price are we willing to pay for following Christ? Ask yourself that question. Would you, be, you, would you be at church today if the penalty for being here was a fine or a period of time in jail? Would you? Would you take that risk of running foul of the authorities to obey God? You know, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's very easy to say that you'll follow the Lord wherever He leads, to sing things like that, to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. But when there's the slightest little bit of opposition, what does that mean to you? I was listening to a sermon by a man who's now in glory. He was a missionary at one time. He was actually the pastor of the Moody Church, Dr. Alan Redpath. He was a very good conference speaker, but he was speaking to a bunch of missionaries. And he was referring to the Christian church in China. He, was, he had dealings with someone from there who was talking about the Chinese church, the underground church. And he said to Alan Redpath, when he asked the question, what do you think is the difference between the, the church in China and the church in the West? He said, well, for a start, since the revolution, the Christian church has doubled in size. And he said, there are no hypocrites in the church. There are no hypocrites. Because the price of following Christ is so high. You either go to jail, or you get killed, or you get fined, or you go to labor camps, whatever it may be. He said the churches are full, and there are no hypocrites. We have things really very good where we live, don't we? 
There's really no price hardly to be paid for being a Christian today in the United States. That may change, by the way. Just watch. There are people who would want to put Christians in jail because they don't follow their worldview and promote their filth. Remember my bonds. There are devoted Christians in our day who are in bonds because of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know any of them, but there are Christians in North Korea. I don't know any of them, but there are Christians in Islamic countries. There are people that are being persecuted for the faith, even as I speak. They're in bonds because of their faithfulness to the Lord. We need to remember them. We need to pray for them. We should pray for the persecuted church. Hebrews 13.3 Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that thou fulfill it. That was spoken to one particular individual but there's a ministry that every Christian has to fulfill. And just as we close these parting words of Paul you'll see that The writer closes in familiar fashion this epistle. You just compare how he started the book. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you. How does he close out? Grace be with you. Amen. Do you know that Paul was preeminently the apostle of grace? He loved to preach about grace. He loved to expound upon grace. And as believers, just like this epistle, we began with grace. But we're kept by grace. We don't keep ourselves in the flesh. We're kept by grace. And as the hymn puts it, it is grace that will lead us home. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught me how to pray, one hymn writer said. It's grace that will lead me home. May the Lord give us grace to serve him. May we be a faithful church. If the Lord... And his mercy makes us bigger. Praise God for that. Let us not let down any standards or try to cut any corners to become bigger. But may the Lord prosper his word. And may the Lord help us all in the ministry that the Lord has given to us, whether it be a public pulpit ministry or not. We have a ministry for the Lord. May we take care to fulfill it by his grace.